This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Julian Dodson, your podcast host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Anna Rose Alexander, the author of City on Fire, Technology, Social Change, and the Hazards of Progress in Mexico City, 1860 to 1910, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. Dr. Alexander is Assistant Professor of History at California State University, East Bay. Dr. Alexander, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Anna, I wonder if you could uh, begin just by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I am a native of California, and I, I always was interested in history. So choosing my history major was a very easy decision for me. But the way I stumbled on Latin America was not the typical way. I didn't go down to Mexico and learn to salsa dance or something like that. But I was in one of my so-called non-Western history classes that I was supposed to take, um, the History of Mexico with Steve Lewis at Chico State. And after just one day in that class, I was captivated. and. I immediately enrolled in all of his other classes about Latin America and started taking Spanish. So I was a junior at that point, uh, kind of late to the game, but totally enamored. And from there, I, I just wanted to keep studying Latin America. And I went on to the University of Arizona, where I got my master's in Latin American studies. And I followed that up with a PhD in Latin American history. Uh, and I worked under Bill Beasley, uh, who's a cultural historian of, of Mexico. So that's kind of my academic trajectory. And since then, I've, I've worked all over the place in British Columbia and Alabama and Georgia. And now I am happily back home at Cal State East Bay, home-ish enough uh, in California and working there as assistant professor of both Latin American history and of the history of sustainability. And that's great if if uh if you get the opportunity to uh to go back home in our profession it's uh it's wonderful. Yeah, you have to jump on that one. <laughs> right. Um I wanted to ask how did you how did you come to this project in the first place? Well, I it's fire is a little bit in my family history. My on my mom's side I come from a long line of firefighters. And on my dad's side, a long line of insurance salesmen. But to be honest, it was really when I I got this 
fellowship from the Federal uh, Department of Education to go down to Puebla as a PhD student and take classes there. So I took classes at uh, the BUAP, the Benamerita Universidad Autónoma de Puebla, and I enrolled in this class called Urban Environmental History of Mexico. And at that point, I did not know what that meant, really. And I, I quickly had to find out because I had to write a, a substantial research paper about it. But it was great because that particular college was right next to the Municipal Archive in Puebla. So for a few weeks, I just looked through the, looked through the catalogs and saw what they had to offer. And I was looking through things about infrastructure and I was really interested in the Porfiriato, so I, I kind of honed in on that time period, looking at infrastructure and water issues. And in those catalogs, I kept seeing things pop up about the request for fire hydrants or requests for a fire hiding, firefighting brigade. And it was curious to me because I would walk around Puebla, the city of Puebla, and look at the buildings and they were all made of adobe and they had tile roofs and I, I just didn't understand why they were so flammable. So that was kind of my first research question was why suddenly around the Porfiriato did people need more fire protection? Why were they demanding this? Was there really an increased risk of fire or was there more of a, a perception of an increased risk of fire? And from that, I ended up publishing that research about Puebla in an article for Mexican Studies. And then I, I came back to the University of Arizona with, with all of this kind of simmering in my head and started taking a lot of classes about environmental history and learning about the history of fire more deeply. And from there, I, I went on to uh, delve into Mexico City uh, and their experiences with fire. Now, I initially had thought that this was going to be a, an institutional history of the fire brigade. But once I got into the archives, I realized that was, that was not going to be the case. So it ended up being a lot, a lot bigger project than I initially thought it would be. The connection uh, between the urban environment and, um, and, and, and what, you know, as you say, kind of uh, became this, you know, a growing interest in the Porfiriato was really, really fantastic. Uh, the book is uh, incredibly well, incredibly well written. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, some of the methodologies that you you employed in this in this book. And and I'd say one of the more interesting aspects of the book for me was that uh, that emphasis on pulling the sense of fear of conflagrations out of the archives. Um, the reader gets a, a lot of this uh, really in the first chapter. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So as I was researching in Mexico City, I mainly went to the municipal archive to start out with where you know it was going to be an institutional history of the fire brigade. So I, I dug through those documents and I got a very good sense of the landscape about this topic and got a good timeline about certain regulations regarding fire, how much money was spent on the brigade, and that sort of stuff. But at the time, I was also reading Drew Faust's book, This Republic of Suffering, which now is a little bit old, but at the time it was brand new. And 
It's all about how people in the U.S. dealt with death and dying during the Civil War. And she does this amazing, amazing job of, of pulling out these stories that are a little unusual um, to talk about the Civil War. So she's talking about the emergence of undertakers and embalming methods, uh, mourning, and she looked at poetry. And so she looked at all of these sorts of documents. And that was certainly in the back of my mind as I was in the archive reading. And so I got this timeline, and then I realized that there were so many areas that I could go. And she, in her book, really inspired me to start looking at different avenues, technology and engineering and medicine, just like she did with death and dying in the Civil War. And so one of the things that I kept finding in my my research was this sense of fear. And so I started reading a little bit more about the history of emotions. And fear is one of these emotions that's really hard to capture. But in the archives, people are kind of adamant about it, saying, petitioning the ayuntamiento, which is the civil or the city council, and saying, I am afraid of my neighbor's house because they're a firework maker, which is actually very common at the time. There were lots of firework shops. And I'm afraid that this place is going to catch fire and kill everyone in the neighborhood and my children. And so you see this deep sense of fear. And you also see this in the newspapers at the time, in broadsides from Jose Guadalupe Posada, in corridos at the time, uh, all really playing into this idea of fear. And, and some of it was that they, they were also afraid of the fire brigade not doing its job quite correctly, not being well-trained enough, not having enough equipment or, or expertise. There's this great image from one of the newspapers that has the fire brigade riding to a, a big conflagration on the back of a, a giant tortoise. And so it, that kind of uh, plays into this idea that they're afraid that the fire brigade's not even fast enough to get to a, a fire in time. And so I, I kept seeing these in all sorts of my documents, uh, whether they were patents about various firefighting inventions. Uh, they often started out the patent by saying, I created this invention or this gadget because there's this there's problem, and some of it was fear provoked. Other things were um, medical related as well. So I have a lot of patient uh, documentation about their fear of being burnt, or the fact that they had been burnt and were had some trauma associated with that experience. So fear and the culture of fear is something that I tried to play with in the beginning as a framing mechanism for the rest of the project. Right, and you 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 mentioned this uh, this just just in in brief there. I I found that discussion of regulation, uh, you know, the the professional fire brigade, and the changing place of of experts and expertise really fascinating. They're they're kind of in the in the middle of the book. You've got this really great. Um, Kind of discussion about what that meant in terms of of people's experience with fire, 
the fear of conflagration, um, actually dealing in regulation of, uh, of fire codes, legislating fire codes. Um, can you go a little bit more in depth there uh, on, on that you know, sort of changing place of experts and expertise? Yeah, I find this discussion of expertise fascinating, and I enjoyed reading various historical works about expertise because I think there's more there's more coming out these days. Uh, a lot of that was provoked by my reading of Gamboa's nineteen, I think it was nineteen o three novel Santa, and in that he has this character uh, who's an inventor engineer, and his his place he's in this uh this boarding house and there are all these characters there and one of them is a a priest and then there's also the santa and there's a bullfighter um but this engineer he suddenly gets revered maybe even more so than the priest and so i thought that was a really good example of kind of shifting tides in Mexico. And Mexico City at the time was becoming a scientific city where uh, the Cienticos were, were rising and, and there was such an emphasis on, on the technological and the scientific and the university training. And I think that the Santa novel did a good job of portraying that in one boarding house. But I wanted to know how does this happen? And so I did a lot of research about the the development of the engineering school and um, how people kind of comported themselves as experts and and displayed their expertise in public and were able to elicit that reverence that you saw in the novel that I was just talking about. And so one of the ways that they did this is that they they put their expertise very visibly on the streets of Mexico City. And so one of the chapters, I painstakingly mapped out all of the fire hydrants that existed around 1870. And you could see that this expertise was visible. People really um, respected it. They requested more fire hydrants. And it was just one of the signs of the engineer's craft along the city streets. and. So that, yeah, that's kind of the discussion of expertise that I had with the engineers, but also there's lots of regulations from the Ayuntamiento itself. And a lot of this was, again, provoked by those petitions from citizens asking for a more regulated and scientific city. Right. And you talk about this, this kind of sort of reverence for expertise but then there's kind of um, uh, there's a little bit of a uh, kind of a conflict or a clash uh, when it came to the fire brigades, right? Um, that you know some sort of saw them as a as a, a necessary uh, uh, component of the modern city and looked to the United States. They looked to to Europe, of course, uh, uh, as you know every sort of modern city has a, a professional fire brigade. But then there's this almost kind of mistrust or lack of faith in, uh, you know, in the, in the firefighters. Um, how did you see that, uh, that divide? Um, are we, are we kind of looking at kind of a, a class divide within the city on opinions of the fire brigade? I 
don't know if it was if it was class necessarily, um, but in regards to the fire brigade, there they had a lot of trouble getting one started in Mexico. The first inklings of of the brigade, the first mentions in the archive that I could find were from 1860, where they tried to just create a, a volunteer brigade. And that's that's a little bit later than uh, Europe and actually quite a bit later than the development of volunteer fire brigades in Europe and the United States. And so I think Mexicans were looking at Europe and the United States that had had a much longer history with fire brigades. And they were much more rooted in communities and established, and there were training protocols. And then Mexico is just trying to get it up and running, and no one wants to volunteer. And so they ended up kind of bagging this this volunteer brigade that had been so successful in Western Europe and the United States and opting for a paid professional one that offered pensions and things that could entice people to become firefighters. Um, And yeah, so I think, I don't know if it was necessarily a class-based thing as much as a an emulation or a a disappointment with the fact that Mexico wasn't quite competing on the level of the United States and Europe yet. And this is actually something that came out in the Olympics. There was a firefighting Olympics at one point and uh, there were delegations from all over the world and uh, the United States ended up winning this firefighting competition where it had to go in and into a burning building and, and get a, a dummy out and it did it in the, the quickest amount of time. So they were actually competing and also just seeing themselves within a larger global context and wondering why their fire brigade wasn't well-funded, wasn't well, uh, why people weren't joining it. So there are, I think there are a lot of reasons there. I remember the, the story that you tell the fictionalized account and um, I think it was El Heraldo de Mexico, the uh, kind of comedic uh, uh, portrayal of, of firefighters um, dumping one of their, one of their saving, uh, the, the, the people that they saved into a sewage ditch and um, uh, kind of a, portraying them as, as buffoons. So kind of the, the external gaze, the, 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 the gaze from, you know, the United States or, or Europe wasn't terribly fav- favorable of these no. for its no, and part and some of it, I think, was that the U.S. and Europe were trying to sell, sell equipment, <laughs> sell all the firefighting uh, engines and uniforms and extinguishers and actual uh, firefighters to come down and train the Mexicans. So that gaze may have been a little distorted because of the potential of making profit. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. On that on that note, um, 
You know, you make a really important uh, historiographical intervention in your discussion of invention. You have an old discussion on on patents right, where fire safety was concerned. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that that particular intervention that you're making there. Yeah, um, that I, I enjoyed that chapter. It was really fun to write. It, it's all about these kind of homegrown inventors. And it was not at all part of my original plan for this book. And I ended up having, I think, coffee or a beer with a friend. And he said, hey, I just saw some fire extinguisher patents at the, the AGN, so the National Archive. Maybe check them out. And it turns out they were very rich in detail. And so I, there were dozens and dozens of these, these patents from Mexican inventors who were trying to profit from this increased risk of flammability and create, create things that could be produced in Mexico. And so my intervention on, on that one is that so much of the history of technology has said that places like Mexico or Latin America, especially in this period, um, have just tried to emulate Western Europe and the United States and lock, sock and barrel just adopted those technologies. But what I found in this, this section of patents was that no, there were very local inventors trying to deal with local problems and they provide some compelling uh, commentary about this in the introduction to their patents. So one of them, one of the, I think it's uh, the image of this is in the book, but one of the fire extinguisher patents was from a Mexican inventor who said, all right, these German extinguishers are wonderful, but we can't find replacement parts. So I've created a model that we can use in Mexico. And it was basically like a glass Coke bottle and a stopper with baking soda and water and you flip it over and, and there's your extinguisher. So things yeah, that, great. yeah, I don't know if I have that one in there. I can't remember, but uh, it, it was easy to replace that and it solved a problem for Mexico. And so what I was trying to you know, argue here is that it's not just this full adoption of technology and that actually there are, um, there are creative people in Mexico trying to make a difference. Now, most of these patents never actually came to fruition. Um, it was expensive to patent these. But it was more expensive to market them and to get them out into the public. So a lot of them, I have not found much evidence. But the fact that they were still inventing them, I think, is is important. That people saw a problem and wanted to to deal with it through technology is kind of what was being promoted at the time. And so that invention one was really fun. Um, another invention from a Mexican was... Uh, Mexican inventor was to deal with the problem of cinemas at the time. So there were very, very big cinema fires uh, all throughout the world at this time. Uh, and if you've seen *Inglorious Bastards*, you probably know why. Um, there's the the nitrate film that was being used at the time, 
was incredibly flammable. And the process uh, with nitrate film is that once it starts burning, it creates a reaction that creates oxygen. So it's terrifying because nitrate film, you can completely submerge it underwater and it will continue to burn and the flames will continue underwater. Check that out on, on YouTube. It's pretty fascinating. So we have these, these cinemas and one of the Mexican inventors, he wanted to deal with this nitrate fire issue. And so he created kind of this, this invention that would go over a projector and it was basically a bucket of water. Let's just say that as a bucket of water. Um, but it was interesting because once the flame started, there was this lever that was wrapped in cotton and the cotton would, um, would dissolve in the flames, would burn up in the flames. And through that lever, the, the bucket would fall down. And then it also had another lever that would flick on the theater lights to warn everyone. So one day, my, a colleague of mine from the physics department decided to try to make it. <laughs> and so we did a little applied history and I translated these patents this patent for him and we tinkered and we both nearly got electrocuted. Let me just say we were dealing with water and buckets of water and, and wiring, but it worked. That patent actually worked. So I'm, I'm sure that inventor would be happy to know that someone is playing around with his inventions many, many years later. And as a historian, uh, that's, that's going above and beyond the call of the research duty. <laughs> Uh, that's a great not, story. It was not wise. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that. I'm glad we're alive. <laughs> it's a fantastic story. Um, I, I wanted to get you to talk a little bit too. Um, you know, this this is a really really fascinating urban environment. I think it uh, urban environmentalist history, and I think it fills a, a really important um, niche in the in the historiography. Um, but it's not just a, an environmental history. It, it's not just a, a history of the urban environment. It's also a social history of the Porphyrian city, right? Uh, and as such, a, a history of inequalities. Um, and you you touch on this uh, throughout. It's a thread that runs um, through uh, throughout the book. Um, can you talk about how fire uh, in in the Porphyrian city kind of laid bare um, those those fundamental inequalities? Yeah, I'd say it, it came out really starkly when I was doing my research. There were haves and there were have-nots. And we know this about the Porphyrian city in general, that it was very unequal. But fire, it, it became really uh, glaring when I was researching it. And so one of the the main arguments or the main tensions I, I see in this book is that there was this tension between public and private. Um, the private side of things was that this was the Porphyrian moment. It was very liberal. Uh, there was a celebration of individualism and entrepreneurialism and a desire to not be too regulated and not have the government coming in and regulating everything at the same time. And, and you see this really clearly with the, the patents and the, the, inventions, but also with private insurance. But the public side of things is that if your neighbor's house catches on fire, 
and your house may be completely insured. That's wonderful. You might have all the newest technologies, but there's still a pretty good chance that a flame will jump over to your house and burn it down. So fire is so communal. Fire is such a community problem and it required so much community cooperation. Um, so we have this real tension between people wanting to do everything on their own and and create their own sense of safety, but because fire is so social and it, it affects everyone in the city, it is a communal problem that requires kind of regulation from above in order to deal with that. And I saw this certainly in in terms of inequality with who got access to fire hydrants. It was all the fire hydrants were and the fire brigades were placed by the the places in the city that were deemed more worthy, the the upper class neighborhoods, for example, or um, next to cinemas, high upper class cinemas and and churches and theaters, um, and the lower class neighborhoods had to fend for themselves. And so now that I'm teaching history of sustainability uh, at Cal State East Bay, I I'm seeing the relevance of my my work on fires from the late 19th century more than ever when I'm talking about climate change with my students. And I see this tension between public and private and this idea that, okay, an individual can arm him or herself against some, some of the effects of climate change, but it is a community-wide effort that will actually make the change. We need global cooperation in order for anything to be done about about climate right now. And so I'm, I'm just seeing this inequality play out, not only in this book about fire, but also in our current discussions about sustainability and about uh, global warming in particular. That's really a fantastic connection, right? Between the 19th century um, and the present. And uh, it's great to be able to use your research or kind of see or to draw the connections um, and, uh, and to share those with your, with your students. Um, one of the things I have to say as historians, we're, you know, we're storytellers. And throughout the book, you frame your larger discussion with these really rich, wonderful stories uh, that serve as, as vignettes. As you were conducting the research for the project, was there a story that was that was really kind of most captivating for you? Oh yeah, and I that was one of the things I liked most about this project is I was I was looking at everyday people and I got to tell kind of everyday stories and not just the top-down ones that you read in official documents. But the story that I had the most fun reading about and writing about was definitely the uh, Mercado de Volador um, had a great fire in 1866. And that fire, it was, I would go to the archive and it was just hundreds of pages about this fire because it was kind of a whodunit murder mystery experience for me. And so every day I was kind of excited to go and read more about it. Um, so the fire started. It, it's still a little unclear how it started, but the entire market burnt down. 
And then afterward, we get kind of every walk of life uh, involved in this case of figuring out what happened. Uh, the Ayuntamiento had been negligent in making sure that the water, that the water for the the mercado was actually available. So the the well was completely empty. The there was no official fire brigade, so they resorted to a bucket brigade. Um, the and then there was an inspector who came in and had to had he interviewed all of these people at the Mercado. So we don't get these records that often um, to hear what happened that night and from the people themselves. And what was interesting is that people just kept pointing the finger at their next person. So uh, this this one man kept saying, oh, this woman, she keeps candles lit in her stall all the time and she has uh, dry hay in there and I'm sure it was her. So it was kind of like... um, the, the worst of, of neighborliness going on in this Mercado. Um, but nonetheless, it was just very fun to talk about. And you saw a lot of the, the characters and the, the types of people that I ended up talking about throughout the book in this microcosm of this fire. And uh, you saw people talking about insurance. Oh, if they had just been insured, they wouldn't have to deal with this because many of the, the market vendors uh, were were devastated after this fire. It was their entire livelihood that had gone up in flames, and they had to move away from their bonds of community and go to other markets throughout the city. But had to get in debt in order to to refill their their market stalls. So you see the the inequality play out in the market itself. The people who had a security net of some sort were able to survive better than those who did not. And so I just, that, that was a very fun story to write about. And I was fortunate to have found that at the, um, the, the historical, the um, municipal archive in Mexico city. It's really fantastic. When you're able to find uh, those, those stories in the archive mm-hmm. that are, that are complete, right? The documentary record doesn't doesn't end right when the story is getting good. Yeah, um, yeah. and I, I, that that story really kind of stood out to me in the book as well. Um, love those stories from the archive. Um, so I wanted to uh, just ask one one last question. Where we've taken up quite a lot of your time, but in the moments we have left, I was hoping you might tell us uh, a little bit about your current research what are you what are you working on now yeah I, i'm not straying too far from the flame uh if you will i had to throw in one pun in there uh so i am i'm jumping a century though i my next project is about 1984 i'm kind of jumping from the liberal period to the neoliberal period and in 1984 there was a a big fire a big petroleum fire at a Pemex plant just outside of Mexico City in, in kind of a makeshift shanty town that developed around a Pemex facility. And so the fire occurred on November 19th, 1984, and it ended up killing about 500 to 700 people and injuring about 5,000 to 7,000 people. And about two days after the fire, the, the government tried to just cover it up. Um, went in and bulldozed the area and displaced about 180 families in 
when they bulldozed the area, they um, they put in its place a recreational park that people now refer to as Parque de los Muertos uh, as a way to just kind of brush it under the rug. And it displaced about 180 people and they were forced to go to housing projects throughout the city. And I started working on this because there are some recently declassified documents from the spy agency in Mexico that have become available. So a couple of years ago, I went down and got them, got pictures of them and have been reading them ever since. But spies were watching the aftermath of this fire unfold. They were writing down every piece of graffiti because there were a lot of protests afterward. And they were going and spying in on all of the underground meetings because there was there was popular mobilization that came out after the fire. And so I'm working on that right now. And just on a personal note, I, I've been studying fire for more than a decade now. And I always kind of address it, analyze it in a very disconnected way as something that happened to people in the past. But uh, just about a year ago now, um, not even a year ago, my family was affected by the campfire up in Northern California. They're all fine, but it was the first time that I had really felt in a, a visceral way what my documents had been telling me for so long. Just that fire is an incredibly scary experience that you could lose everyone in a heartbeat. Um, and then also it made me kind of keenly aware of the post-disaster part of things. So Paradise, California, that was affected by the campfire, is trying to be rebuilt, but people are leaving and there's so much displacement going on. And I'm, I'm just, I'm sensing this for the first time kind of on a personal note. So I think, I think doing this second project is going to be a little bit harder for me. And I got to figure out where the personal can weave into the, the uh, historical here and how to address that in terms of my own, my own experiences and my family's experiences. So that's what I'm working on right now. And I'm going back down to Mexico in about a month to continue to do some research and I'm hoping to have it out by the 40th anniversary in 2024. So that is what I'm doing. That's really fascinating new new research. I can't wait to to read it. Again, we've been talking to Dr. Anna Rose Alexander, author of City on Fire: Technology, Social Change, and the Hazards of Progress in Mexico City, 1860 to 1910. I'd like to thank you, Anna, for talking with me today. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 